Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 277 of the podcast. It is March 23rd, 2017. Joining me today is Kay Kendall. She is co-author with Glenn Bodenson of the excellent book titled Leading the Malcolm Baldridge Way, How World-Class Leaders Align Their Organizations to Deliver Exceptional Results. Kay is CEO and principal at an organization called Baldridge Coach. Since 1989, Baldridge Coach has worked with organizations across every sector, large and small, to use the Baldridge framework to create focus, align empowered employees, provide high-quality products and services, deliver exceptional customer experience, and achieve enviable results. So in this episode, we'll talk about the book, we'll discuss Kay's background in manufacturing and quality, her experience with the Baldridge approach, and the ways that Lean and Baldridge are complementary. If you'd like to find the page for this episode with links to the book and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 277. Well, again, our guest is Kay Kendall. Kay, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Thanks, Mark. I'm happy that you had invited me. So you know, we're talking about um, the book Leading the Malcolm Baldridge Way, and um, we're going to get into some related topics. Um, before talking about the book, can you introduce yourself and, and your background for the listeners? Um, I spent uh, more than 20 years in corporate America, mostly as an executive leading quality organizations, but I've been involved with the Baldridge program since the early 1990s. Uh, became an examiner, have been an examiner for uh, several state programs as well as other Baldrige-related programs, served as a judge for three years for the Baldrige program, and I continue to serve as an alumni. I think it's just an incredible uh, framework that helps organizations of, of all sizes, and I've been doing consulting with organizations and using the framework since 2009. And, you know, I think we'll have a chance here free to give an overview of the Baldridge um, program for, for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with it. But I, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more. Um, what industries did you work in before getting involved with Baldridge or even as you got involved with Baldridge? Um, I started out in uh, pharmaceuticals, and then I spent 15 years in aerospace, then worked in semiconductor automation equipment. And then my uh, last job in corporate America was with Sun Microsystems, which is now uh, Oracle. Mm-hmm. And so what, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what made you interested in quality as, um, as, as something to work on? What, what was you know, interesting or, and or you know, hopefully exciting to you about working in quality? Well, it's, it's, um, to me, it's, it's the best of both worlds because it has a clear customer focus. But if you do it right, it also really is a way that you can engage people in in their own jobs, improving their own work. Yeah, and can you give an overview of the Baldridge approach and, and maybe in your explanation of that, talk about how you got introduced or involved with it? Well, the Baldridge is a framework. It's non-prescriptive. It can apply to any type of organization, any size organization. Um, it has seven categories. The first six are process categories, and they deal with leadership, strategic planning, customers, measurement and knowledge management, 
workforce and operations. And the seventh category is all about results. Mm. And it's really um, arranged in sort of a balanced scorecard approach to look at results. A lot of people that only know the Baldrige Award from its early days of being a National Quality Award really are surprised to find out that there are 1,000 points possible, but 450 points are reserved for the results category. So anybody who thinks that it's just a kinder, gentler way of doing business <laughs> really hasn't looked at the criteria in recent days to see that it really is very much uh, focused on the business, achieving the objectives of the business. I first got introduced to Baldridge when I was working at Allied Signal. Our chief quality officer had come from Xerox, where he had led their um, Baldridge winning application project. And he held the first internal Baldridge examiner course at Allied Signal, and I was in that. And I was absolutely smitten. Um, I just had never had a management model that to me was so encompassing without having that prescriptive nature to it. And I tried to become a Baldridge examiner the following year, didn't get in. Jim, the chief quality officer, encouraged me to become an examiner for the state program, which I did. And then the following year, I was accepted as a Baldrige examiner. And I continued to do the state program for a few years, too, because, as I said, I was smitten. Yeah. Now, can you kind of explain a little bit some of the background and the, and the difference today between the national award? Um, I, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that it originated out of the federal government, I think the Department of Commerce, and then it has sort of evolved and, and spread to include state-level awards. Can you kind of you know, talk about a little bit of that history? Well, it actually was an interesting public-private partnership and initially had no funding. Mm. It was uh, housed in the uh, uh, standards uh, NIST because that w they had a, a strong history of partnering with business, but we're very apolitical. Mm -hmm. um, it has subsequently lost funding, but has, a, a, again, a very strong support. There's a foundation, and we all hope at some point that it will be funded again because it really does bring so much uh, competitive advantage to organizations in the U.S. Um, it also then did spawn into several other Baldrige-based programs, in states, in uh, regions, also in some industries. So, for instance, the long-term care program has a Baldrige-based uh, award program. Uh, the housing construction industry also does. So, it's, and it's also been replicated around the world. At last I checked, there were something like more than 70 countries or regions around the world that have Baldrige-based programs. Interesting. And... Um one of the, are there programs in in all fifty states, or just certain states where those have been established? There, there are programs that cover all but two states currently. Okay. Well, for those who you know, regularly listen to the podcast, back in episode two eighteen, about two years ago, my guest was Karen Keel Rosser from a hospital system, health system, Mary Greeley Medical Center in Iowa. Um, anyone who wants to go back to that episode, you can hear Karen talking about their uh, Baldridge journey and their Baldridge process and how they've combined Lean and, and Baldridge. Um, I was wondering, Kay, if you could comment a little bit more when you talk about Baldridge being non-prescriptive. Karen talked about that. Um, 
lean for them was was some of the how. You know, she said Baldridge was the what, lean was the how. What what are some of your thoughts on lean and Baldridge, or are there other ways of kind of uh, you know, in, since Baldridge is non-prescriptive, other methodologies or other ways that people can define uh, the how? Well, I think a lot of it depends on the culture of the organization and the type of work that they do. Uh, I know Karen very well. We work with them on their Baldrige journey as mm-hmm. well. Uh, and I've been very impressed with what they've been able to accomplish with Lean. And I know that you've worked with them too. So mm-hmm. it's kind of a nice um, point of overlap for us. Right. Um, so, so let me tell you why I think that there's some issues around the culture of an organization we work with a lot of long-term care clients, and even more so than a hospital or healthcare system, it's very, very difficult for them to do what I'll call continuous and traditional process improvement like lean, like total quality. And the reason is they have very, very, pardon the pun, very, very lean staffing. And these are folks that are on the floor, constantly giving care. And so the idea of doing what many of us are familiar with, which is pulling people aside, having a Kaizen event, pulling people aside and having meetings in conference rooms, is just not very practical for them. So for them, using some of the tools, even something as simple as uh, PDCA, mm-hmm. and teaching them some of the basic quality tools like fishbone diagrams, um, basic charting, that gives them a lot of leverage, and it's very appropriate for their setting, where you have organizations that are not so resource-constrained in terms of staffing, and also, quite frankly, in terms of some education. Um, Some of the people that work in long-term care, they have the best hearts in the world, and they give terrific care, but many of them don't have extensive education. So any kinds of methodologies require a lot of math, a lot of analysis, is not going to be something that's that's going to be comfortable for them. So I don't I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. It might be a long-winded way, but <laughs> no, it's okay. Well, I, I have to come back to so when you said talking about the pun of quote unquote lean staffing. Um, I, I'm sure we're in agreement that um, lean staff, you know, lean the methodology isn't about being understaffed. It's about having the right staffing exactly. levels to be able to do the right work. There's there's a whole different podcast about um, challenges with that word lean. Um, you know, but when we talk about improving quality and um, engaging people, I mean, I think we, we could do that in so many different ways, whether we use, you know, really uh, you know, deep mathematical statistical methods or if we you know, in, try to get everyone to speak up to point out problems and, and test solutions in that you know, uh, PDSA or PDCA um, style. Um, one, one other question I would, I, that comes to mind, though, okay, when you talk about culture how much of the Baldridge process, you know, for let's say an organization like Mary Greeley or others getting recognition at a state or federal level, how much of that process is about recognizing organizations that are already doing a really good job with quality? Um, and, and how much of this process is about organizations being able to take pretty big steps forward in, in that journey? Well, the Baldridge Award isn't about being pretty good. It really is a standard of excellence across a variety of dimensions. So it's um, it, it it's 
very intentional. That's one of the things in, in the book that we wrote recently that, that really surprised us. We never asked any of the executives that we interviewed a single question about culture. But every single executive we talked to talked about culture and how they intentionally designed the culture that they wanted their organizations to have and how they reinforced that in various ways. Mm-hmm. And, and why, why do you think that is? Uh, why, that, that's interesting that, that the process wouldn't ask about culture. Why, why is that? Is that because culture is more of um, a result than something you like a lever you directly pull? Or t- tell me more about that. Well, the criteria actually does ask about culture, and it asks in several places about how senior leaders help to shape the culture. It also asks um, the organizations to describe their cultures. I think the difference is they're not, the the criteria doesn't prescribe a set culture. Mm. So I'll I'll give you, for instance, I've been on multiple site visits with the Baltics program and with other programs. Every organization that I visited that was a recipient or close to being a recipient had what we sometimes call a palpable culture, but they were very different cultures. Mm-hmm. But in each of them, the, the, the workforce was incredibly engaged. And as you pointed out, they were engaged in, in different ways, but in offering solutions and coming up with ideas. It was a culture of inclusion. Well, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, whether it, it's based on Baldridge principles or, or just your own experience. When we talk about engagement, I, I hear people you know, far too often sort of, you know, complain that their employees aren't engaged in, you know, either in the way they're asking it or, or in their tone. It sounds like they're blaming the employees for not being engaged, which I, I, I think is silly. But what, what are your views or advice on you know, how, to, how to get started in engaging uh, people in, in quality improvement? Well, I think one is you have to genuinely respect the people that work for you. Mm-hmm. And I know that we've had some exchanges on, on Twitter about this. You know, you hear some things that come out of leaders' mouths and you just think, you cringe. Um, you know, like, that's not your job. Don't worry mm-hmm. about that. Even something as simple as we were working with a new client the other day and trying to wonder about getting frontline staff and, and this committee that we were meeting with, which is one of their quality improvement committees at a, at a senior level, um, at our insistence, included some frontline staff in the meeting. And that was kind of horrific to us, realizing mm-hmm. that that was something we had to encourage them to do rather than mm-hmm. something that they thought was natural. So we asked a couple of the people, um, how long have you worked here? And one said 10 years, the other said seven years. He said, have you ever been asked for your ideas? Mm. And they very bravely said, no. Right. And we said, well, you know, you've worked here a long time. Do you have some ways that you think things might be improved? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was um, interesting and, and actually good because there were a lot of chagrined looks around the table. They, they understood the point we were making, Yeah, that you have people that have come in here to work for seven and ten years, respectively. They're good people. They work hard. And you've never once asked them what they think. Yeah. And, and that's 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 sad. And uh, there's this weird catch 22. Where I've heard leaders say, well, pe- people should speak up. Like, well, it's not that easy when you're not the boss. Um, I mean, I think, 
you know, going back to, to Deming, Dr. Deming and, and others in the quality movement, and I think you touched on this, you know, you always said, you know, quality starts at the top, that leaders need to set the tone um, in, in a lot of different ways. And I think part of that tone includes asking other people um, to, to asking them to step forward and then making it safe for them to do so. You know, I've seen a lot of organizations in, in recent years that basically kind of you know, lecture the employees, well, you have an obligation, you should speak up for safety and quality. But the organization demonstrates when people do speak up that it, um, uh, you know, can be, punitive. Can, be dam- it can be punitive, it can be damaging to their careers. So um, I think it's, well, and, know, go ahead. And, and, no, I'm sorry. And, and sometimes it's, it's um, I, I worked for a boss one time who, the, the standing joke was, and it wasn't really funny, was that he already knows everything. And if he doesn't know it, it's because it's not worth knowing. <laughs> But that was that was his attitude. You know, he was always going to be clearly the smartest guy in the room, mm-hmm. and that's really off-putting. Yeah. And so I, you know, and I was an executive at the time, and I can imagine how how people, you know, in the front line would have felt about that. I, I had I was head of quality, and I, I had an employee. I was working late one evening, a final inspector who was getting a lot of grief about passing off a product that shouldn't shouldn't be shipped. And she came up to my office and asked for my support. Later on, when we had an all-staff meeting, I overheard some of her peers kind of teasing her, and I, so I asked her to stay back and talk to me afterwards. And what I said was, what's carpet land? And she got this very embarrassed look, and, and I said, no, come on, you can tell me. What's carpet land? Mm. That was executive role. Mm. Yep. Because every place else in it was a manufacturing facility. Every place else had linoleum, yeah. and she had actually, in coming to see me, violated one of the the unspoken rules, which was you don't go out to carpet land. Mm. And I was crushed when I heard that. Well, you know, and I've I've heard similar, almost the exact same story in healthcare, where I, I was at a hospital system maybe seven or eight years ago and you know think of the message being sent the um, executive offices were in a building that was like quite literally across the street from the hospital now you know there was a you know a a bridge over the street an enclosed uh, hallway bridge that went across and one of the uh, management student uh, interns during the graduate program was spending time with us in the lab and on the hospital side of the street and he was really interested in process improvement and he was you know, kind of hanging around our, our, our project team a lot. And he was trying to learn and contribute and see what was going on. And he, he came across one day and he said, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be around here uh, as much. He, he said that his boss, who was a VP of quality, she told him something to the effect of, yeah, you're spending too much time across the street and you shouldn't do that because they have bad attitudes and blah, blah, blah. Oh, my. Why do you think they have bad attitudes? It's because for the most part, the executives were staying on their side of the street. So this is I mean, I think a culture like that is really, really hard to change if, um, you know, maybe I think when that management student gets further along in his career, maybe he can he can lead differently. Right. Um but anyway, sorry, sorry to get sidetracked on, on my story. Oh, but, no. You know, there's, a, there's a big need for improvement here. And I was wondering, um, you know, kind of thinking back to 
the quality movement as that phrase was used, you know, maybe in, in, in the eighties, total quality management, Dr. Deming was still alive there. Um, we've had some exchanges on Twitter about this where I, I hate to be too cynical, but sometimes I, 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 I think quite literally the, the war on quality has been lost. That quality has been defeated that, you know, so many organizations just don't seem to know, what they're doing. They don't train their employees, it seems. They don't support them, and, and we suffer as as customers. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on the quality movement? What happened um, in, in terms of sort of like this broader business focus? Do you still hear uh, people outside of kind of limited circles talking about quality? I don't, not nearly as much as I used to. Um, and, and I'm going to say something that perhaps is a little jaded. Um, I think that, as I said, I worked in aerospace for 15 years. We really had changed the culture dramatically when we introduced total quality management. And we called it total quality leadership. Mm-hmm. And, and really broke down a lot of the hierarchy that had been existent in that organization and in that industry. And Here's where I'm going to sound very dated. I think we did ourselves a great disservice the way that we implemented Six Sigma. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, black, the initial master black belts that were trained were trained in a very arrogant way, and they went about bashing everything that was not Six Sigma. So you suddenly went from a very inclusive, it's everybody's job, but not just job, it's everybody's right mm-hmm. to improve their own processes improve their own work to this elitist view that only if you were a belt did you have the tools and the smarts to improve processes. And I saw a real shift in in the culture. I think it changed back a little bit for the better when we started implementing uh, some of the lean principles. Right. Because that definitely did get the people that were doing the work involved in improving the work. Which, which I, I mean, I think that's that's a strength of the lean approach. And you know, to your comment, I mean, I you know, I, I don't want this to be interpreted as um, I'm I'm not bashing Six Sigma, but what you say about the arrogance is something that I've run across even very recently. I'm not going to name names here, but there one of one of the guys who uh, claims to be a co-creator of Six Sigma, um, boy, comes across as really arrogant in his writing and his promotions and that you should be lucky to come and sit at his feet and learn from him. And, and that I find off putting. I, um, you know, the, 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 the lean luminaries that I've had the chance to meet and run across, um, certainly, certainly don't have that, that tone or attitude. So I'm not going to generalize. I'm not generalizing the saying all Six Sigma people are arrogant and all lean people are humble servant leaders. That's, that's of course, no generalization is not always going to be true, but I, I agree with you though, that, um, you know, that taking quality improvement out of, um, everybody's hands does a disservice, I think, to those employees and the organizations. Well, and, and I didn't want that to come across as bashing either because I was a master black belt right. no, later on in my career. Um, but, but I think, again, it, it could be said for any tool, any mm-hmm. approach, any methodology. If people come at it with the I'm the expert and you are the idiot, 
mm-hmm. and you should be glad to have me. <laughs> yeah. that, that's, that's obviously detrimental to a culture that we want to have. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk um, a little bit about the book. Again, the title is Leading the Malcolm Baldridge Way, How World-Class Leaders Align Their Organizations to Deliver Exceptional Results. How, how did you and Glenn um, you know, get started with, uh, with writing the book? What led to the book? Well, actually, we were surprised. We were contacted by McGraw-Hill, mm-hmm. um, and they were looking for a book on leadership that related to uh, Malcolm Baldrige. And we have you know, just such a passion around that that we put together a proposal and got it accepted and we're under contract. Our, our initial premise, which we actually carried through on the book, was a lot of senior leaders, a lot of executives have pretty short attention spans. And just like Baldrige is not one-size-fits-all, um, you know, we wanted to speak to leaders where where they were. So, for instance, we have chapters that talk about dealing with very large organizations, a chapter on dealing with very small organizations. Um, what do you do if you're a leader and you have a you come into an organization that has a culture of entitlement? So it was really intended that leaders could pick up this book and dive into what I spoke to them. Mm-hmm. And we, it's really met that need. And um, the, bu- the book was released what, a couple of months ago. Can you talk about you in, know, the, the in, launch? In, oh. in November. It was released in November. Yeah. Um, we've we've uh, actually had a lot of interest even um, internationally. Uh, we have a, a very good friend, a colleague, who, who uh, was a consultant for more than four years over in India, working with one of their largest uh, conglomerates, if you will, and it's gotten a lot of attention over there. Uh, I actually had a request from somebody in Taiwan <laughs> to give them information about the book. Um, I'm hoping that we have more American business leaders that also read it. Yeah. So. Yeah, and and within the book, I mean, there, there's uh, a lot of great stuff here. You you touch on um, you know points in the book how lean and and Baldridge um, fit together. Um, there, there's chapter 14 here on. Lessons learned about the journey. Can can you share, you know, maybe one of those lessons learned that you shared in the book? Well, um, this probably won't surprise you, but it does many people that we talk to. Not one of the senior leaders said, "Gee, I wish we'd waited. I wished we'd waited until we were quote ready." Oh, mm-hmm. They all said, "You know, I wish we'd gotten started. I wish we'd gotten started earlier, because it really." Even the ones that started out initially with wanting to win the award, at some point in their journey, they shifted from that view to recognizing how much better their organizations were becoming. And, and one of the executives, the CEO of one of the healthcare systems that was a, an award recipient, David Tilton, described his own evolution where he talked about getting lost in that focus on the award. And he realized what he was doing to to the organization and stressing them about that. And he consciously shifted his focus and the way he talked about it to talking about becoming award worthy. And that was the real purpose. And oddly enough, that was the year after he shifted was the year that they won the award. <laughs> ah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, when you, um, you know, talk about this question, this hand wringing about being ready. I hear the same thing about you know kaizen and continuous improvement or lean. And organizations will plan and research and talk about it and and, and back off and say, oh, our culture is not ready for this yet. And I've always 
you know, I've thought, well, yeah, you're never ready and, and don't expect to be perfect at this. Um, you're not going to go from um, low levels of performance to high performance immediately. You've got, you've got to start. And if you're following a, a continuous improvement mindset, you'll, you'll take some, you'll plan, you'll take some steps, you'll, you'll do, and you'll, you'll study and adjust. And I, I, I think that's, I think that's really good advice. It's interesting that that uh, feedback um, came out of your interviews in the book. Well, and, and I think you're right, too, that you don't have to bite off a big chunk. You know, early small wins are very important. Um, and, and they don't have to be the knock it out of the park, but small wins that allow people to get a sense of accomplishment, mm-hmm. that, that allow them to test management's commitment, those are important. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I think, you know, when I, I'm working with people who are new and, and you know, I'm trying to encourage them or coach them. And a lot of times people kind of hold back and say, well, yeah, how do I know how do I know leadership is serious this time? I'm like, well, I, I can't prove that. We just, uh, you know, we, you have to wait and see. And I understand the skepticism of people not wanting to uh, invest time and energy into something that might um, that might fade away, as they've seen before. Oh, absolutely. I understand that. And and for people that have have had senior leaders that didn't have a lot of perseverance with yeah. approaches. We, we heard that from one of the executives that, that we talked to, um, the owner, uh, Ken Schnitzer, of Park Place Lexus um, and, and all of the, the dealerships that they have. He said that when they initially embarked on the Baldur's journey, it was met with a lot of skepticism, and he acknowledged that he was the, he was the root cause of it. Yeah. He said, because my first you know, five or six years leading the organization, he said, I didn't really stick with anything. I would try something and abandon, try something and abandon. Mm. He said it was, it was natural that they had you know, skepticism about this. And he right. said, so I had to really double down and, and prove that I was serious about it. So um, before we wrap up here in a couple of minutes, um, can you talk about uh, you know, some of the ways when you talk about mentioning or you mentioned working with long-term care facilities, other types of organizations, what are some of the ways that, that you... Uh, and Glenn help organizations in this Baldridge process? Well, some of them are uh, interested in submitting an application to either Baldridge or a Baldridge Space program. And even if they're interested in the application support, what we first do is, is help them um, by facilitating a self-assessment against the, the Baldridge framework. Because it doesn't make a lot of sense, even though I talked about know getting started it doesn't make a lot of sense necessarily to submit an application right off the bat if you have huge gaps in some of the key processes contained within the framework Um, there are some clients that we work with that they're knowledgeable about the framework in fact we're working with one right now where the CEO came from an organization that had won the Baldrige Award he's very familiar with the framework but he really doesn't have any desire to go after the award Mm -hmm. but he has a strong desire to implement the processes, the systems, and the systematic approaches throughout the organization based on the framework. Oh. So we, okay. we do both. Um, we're really not all about the award, although it's fun to have clients um, reach that level of excellence and, and receive that recognition. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of our clients that's featured in, in the book is the first long-term care facility in the country to ever receive the Baldrige Award. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're always excited when you can kind of take away excuses because yeah. a lot of people will say, oh, we could never compete because we're too small, we're too big, we're too unique. Um, 
this is a 68-bed facility in rural Idaho, and they have achieved exceptional results year after year after year. So we're, we're thrilled to, that they can show the long-term care industry that excellence is possible. Yeah. Well, that's great. And I, I've heard others, um, even in the context of, let's say, the Shingo Prize, say the value that comes out of that is uh, a framework that challenges you to reevaluate things, getting some outside perspective. I, I know lots of organizations, some of whom in healthcare, who have used that framework, even though they don't plan on submitting formally to try to get the prize. So I think that's that's interesting to hear a similar thing about the Baldridge process. Um, so as we wrap up here, um, you know, again, I encourage people to uh, to pick up the book, Leading the Malcolm Baldridge Way. Um, Kay, what are some ways people can find you online if they uh, want to connect with you in social media or, or you know, contact you about possibly working with them? Well, I'm on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, Twitter, my handle is at K-A-Y-A Kendall. Um, and then we also have a website, which is www.baldridgecoach.com. And the only thing I ask people to remember is Baldridge has only one D. Because a lot of people misspell it and they can't find us. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've misspelled it many times. So <laughs> I've tried to learn. <laughs> but, um, you know, again, our, our guest has been um, Kay Kendall. She is, along with Glenn Bodinson, um, co-author of a really nice book, Leading the Malcolm Baldridge Way. Um, Kay, do you have any, uh, any kind of uh, final thought or tip uh, to leave the listeners with? I would just say whatever approach it is that you're trying to take your organization to a higher level performance, whether it's lean, Baldridge, or some other approach, get started and stay with it. Great advice. Kay, thank you uh, for being uh, a guest and spending some time with us today. Thanks so much, Mark. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.